oh my God, I'm trading my health for my career. And that is a very bad trade because when you think about it, and this for any listener thinking about this, the reality is when you think about a time when you were really sick, whether it was as an adult, whether it was a kid, think about that when you were really sick. Did you feel like doing anything other than lying in bed? Probably not. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hello and welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Professor Pete Alexander. We call him Professor Pete. I've known Professor Pete for 15 or so years. I don't really remember exactly when it was, but it was about 15, maybe 16 years. We met in a business networking group and we've stayed kind of in loose contact ever since. He's had a 35-year career that spans sales and marketing, being a college professor in marketing, and running a small interior landscaping business called Office Plants by Everything Grows where he's still the majority owner. The common thread across all of his roles was stress. And I wanted to have him on the podcast because life is hard, work is hard, business ownership is hard, teaching is hard, and we're all stressed out completely. Mm -hmm. So his book entitled Lighten Your Day, Fast, Easy, and Effective Stress Release was published in 2019. Pete, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I really appreciate your listeners' time as well. Uh, thanks, Pete. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So first, just to set us up, where do you call home and where are you connecting from today? So I'm connecting from outside of Seattle. They call it the greater Seattle area, but I'm actually a stone's throw away from the Olympic National Park on the Olympic Peninsula. So it's a wonderful place to live, especially if you like hiking and you know backpacking and outdoorsy stuff. And where'd you grow up? Grew up in the Bay Area, East Bay primarily, so uh, Oakland, Alameda, a graduate of Alameda High School. Oh, great. So growing up in the East Bay, Alameda, Oakland, mm -hmm. what did you learn about money? Did you Were there intentional lessons that your parents taught you or the things <clears throat> you just picked up on the way? That's an interesting one. So I learned, I grew up in an extremely dysfunctional family. So what I learned was that when you don't manage your money properly, that has a very strong effect on your kids. You know, we had to move different times because there wasn't money to pay rent. There were many times where we had no food in the house. You know, back in the day, the phone, you know, connected to the wall, it would just disconnect because we, you know, hadn't paid our phone bill or we would have the calling and saying that they were going to evict us and stuff. So I learned that obviously when you don't manage your money, that there's consequences to that. And it also created a lot of stress. And also for me personally, as a, you know, a kid growing up in that, I learned how to try and cover it up to my friends in school because it was embarrassing as well. Wow. I think that's a first here on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So how do those experiences translate into money beliefs today? Did you 
work, do work to sort of battle those back? Or how does that become who you are today with money? Oh, it had a huge influence because when you feel like you don't know where that money is going to, where the money's going to come from, or if you're even going to have any money, it creates this fear. And it really can be undermining. It absolutely can. And so for me, what it taught me was that I needed to save wherever I could. Because, you know, in the event that I lost my job or in the event that the economy completely crashed, whatever it is where I couldn't depend on whatever my money sources were, I needed to be able to fall back on something because, you know, I didn't want to end up like what my parents did. And, you know, so my sister used to say that she, I would be the first millionaire that she knew. And I think that turns out to be the case because, you know, I just kept on saving. As an employee, I went into those 401k plans. I just kept on putting as much money as I possibly could right from the start. You know, didn't wait until my 30s, 40s, and 50s to think, oh, you know what, maybe I need to save something. And... So I just kept on doing that, kept on doing that, kept on doing that. And, you know, that now allowed me to be able to live debt free later in life. Yeah, it's I mean, I'm really curious about this kind of scenario specifically because I was raised with very little. And so there's this sort of scarcity mentality that sets mm-hmm. in and you're right, you save, you save, you save. But I'm wondering now that you are stable, as you said, you, you have assets in the bank, you've got your 401ks, you've got your raise. Does it ever creep up on you? Like, do you find yourself behaving in a way like, oh, it's all going to go away? You mean that as far as the scarcity mentality that it's, or that the money yeah, the that fear. I cur- Does the fear ever come back? Yes, it does every now and then. And it is really more because of healthcare more than anything else. And the reason I say that is because, you know, when if something happens to you physically mentally or physically and you really need extensive health care for that that can be extremely expensive and so that is you know is one thing where i think wow okay i do have health insurance but what does it cover what doesn't it cover because you look at all the fine print and it's very hard to see truly what it is that's going to be covering so that's one thing and i have a friend of mine who he spent his whole career in sales did very well and then his wife got sick and he spent the vast majority of their nest egg trying to help her recover she ended up passing away and now he's you know not in, I don't want to say scarcity mode, but he's living very, very simply because he had to sell his house. He had to sell all, or you know, cash in all of their investments. So it can be something that's really devastating. And then you add to it as well. If you're a parent, you know, you're always there as a support mechanism for your kids as well. And then for me too, ironically, when my mother was still alive, I was the sandwich generation because my mother was my oldest kid she because you know my dad didn't say anything my mom absolutely didn't save anything in fact when she died she had 32,000 in credit card debt because she thought it was okay to pay the bare minimum every month and she had been doing that apparently for 15 years 20 years and so paying 20 25 30 percent interest whatever it was that was nuts 
And then she had other debt as well. She was well over 60,000 in debt. And it's really sad because, you know, all of her credit card creditors were coming after me and saying, oh, we're looking for the estate of, which I love because, you know, estate to me sounds like there's actually some money there. And, you know, unless, unless you want to consider the stuff that went to Goodwill, she didn't have anything that was worth saving. So... <laughs> It's just nuts. And so we, there I was supporting her with where she was living, supporting my kids. And that's a really tough thing, too, because, you know, at least for me, my feeling is I don't want to be a burden for my kids. And so part of my strategy of saving, saving, saving is that I wouldn't feel like I got to go ask them, you know, down the road if something happened to me. Yep. I've heard that story said many different ways, but one of my coaches told me once, you know, if you ask a 40-year-old, they'll never understand this. A 50-year-old might begin to understand it. A six-year-old maybe, but a 70-year-old, if you give the 70-year-old the choice between dying today, like not making it through the day, or go going across town to ask their kids for money, the 70-year-old will choose to die. Right. Choose, I don't want to ask, I don't want to be a burden. So that's a real thing that the dignity of aging in place is important. It's absolutely, absolutely. So before we dig into the book, what made you write it? Like, how did you get from all the things you did? To, maybe I should write a book about stress. That's, you know. Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit of background. So basically what happened, you know, with that family dysfunction I grew up with, stress and I have had a lifelong experience together. And when I became an adult, I just learned how to try and ignore my stress, not deal with it, just ignore it. And then I was in my mid-40s, it was back in 2008, and I had a perfect storm of stressful activities happening to me. My dad was dying and he needed his affairs to be taken care of. My mom at that point was having major surgery and of course didn't have insurance enough to cover for her physical therapy. She needed help and so she needed attention. My kids were pretty small at that time, wanting my attention, and I was running my business. And, you know, I had several employees, they needed my attention. And, uh, oh yeah, my marriage was heading for a divorce. So, you know, needless to say, plenty of things on my shoulders. And then all of a sudden, I lost 30 pounds in 30 days. And at first, you know, being in my mid forties, I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I hadn't lost weight since my early 20s, right? I'm thinking, this is great. I'm not doing any special exercise. I'm not doing any special dieting. No, nothing, right? And the weight kept on coming off. And so after the 30th pound came off, I thought, you know what? I better check this out. And blood work came back and it this said, is not hey. Right. right. And they said, guess what? You have stress-induced diabetes. And I thought, first I said, what is diabetes? Because nobody in my family had that. And so then they said, yeah, it's stress-induced because, you know, what I learned from the doctors is that technically it's not, a stress doesn't immediately give you diabetes or heart disease or cancer or whatever happens. But what happens is one of those, when stress continuously hits us, where we're not managing it properly, and we're dumping that cortisol into our systems over and over again. What ends up happening is it causes cellular inflammation. And that cellular inflammation mm -hmm. is what leads to chronic disease. 
Well, as a classic entrepreneur and uh, you know, type A personality, what I did was I just said, okay, just give me the drugs, whatever I need. I don't have time to deal with this. Keep on going, right? You've got to love that. And so I continued to burn the candle at both ends for another 10 years. And then I ended up in the emergency room with a severe case of diabetic ketoacidosis. And for those listeners who don't know what that is, basically my body was eating itself alive because of my stress. And at that point, you know, I realized, you know what? I don't know what made me get this bad, but it was because I was ignoring all the signs. I mean, our bodies give us all these different signs smaller signs saying, you bet me to take care of this. Like even before I got my diagnosis with diabetes back in 2008, my back would lock up to the point where I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand, you know, that feeling. And it just, and I was constantly sore and everything. And it didn't matter because I said, "Uh, no, I had constant headaches. So what I had was the epiphany moment because in the emergency room, they decided to transfer me to my first and hopefully only experience in the ICU. And I was in the ICU for several days. And on my second day in ICU, I got this work email and a text that followed it. And I looked at that and I went, oh, I got to take care of that. That's important. And so I started sitting there with my phone because what a surprise. I didn't have my laptop with me in the ICU. And I'm sitting there on my phone trying to respond to this because it was, I had to reschedule a couple things and I'm trying to figure that out on my phone. And the nurse that was caring for me at that point, you know, pretty much a complete stranger, she comes over and they were checking my blood every 30 minutes or so all through the night, 24 out of seven. So, you know, anybody who thinks, oh, you get some rest in the ICU. No, (laughs) you don't. That's constantly poking and prodding you. And uh, so I'm sitting there on my phone, blah, 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 like this. My numbers as a diabetic, so glucose numbers, when I was admitted into, the numbers were so high that the medical grade glucometers could not read it. It just said high. So the lab, the hospital lab had to manually estimate, and they estimated that my numbers were eight to 10 times higher than they should be. So on my second day in ICU, the numbers had come back down into more reasonable numbers, not great, but they were still high, but reasonable in the point where, oh, okay, so the glucometers can read it. And as the nurse takes my blood, It reads it and it sees that all of a sudden, instead of going down like this, like a 90 degree angle, it started skyrocketing back up. And she says to me, just a matter of factly, she says, you realize that's what put you in this hospital bed in the first place. And it was like, finally, you know, I knew this, but I needed to have somebody who had no skin in the game, let's say, in my life to basically say, this is what's going on. And I sat there and I thought, oh my God, I'm trading my health for my career. And that is a very bad trade because, you know, yeah, when you think about it, and this for any listener thinking about this, the reality is 
When you think about a time when you were really sick, whether it was as an adult, whether it was a kid, think about that when you were really sick. Did you feel like doing anything other than lying in bed? Probably not. And when you're in that state, you're no good to your career. You're no good to your business. You're no good to the people you love because you have no energy, nothing. And so when you trade your health for your career or, you know, it's just a very, very, very bad trade. And so after I got out of the hospital, I just decided I got to do something different because if I don't, I'm not going to be around that much longer. And so I started experimenting with different stress relief tools and techniques. And what I found was that not only did my stress go down, my glucose numbers as a diabetic went down, my weight went down, and my energy level went way, way up. Jonathan, it was like I had found like a fountain of youth. And here's the crazy thing. If you were to see a picture of me back in 2008, and you look at me now, other than a little bit more gray hair, I actually look younger today than I did 15 years ago. That's what stress does to us. It's nuts. And so I had friends, coworkers, family members who all said, you ought to write a book about this. And so what I did was I ended up writing this book and um, yep. it did well on Amazon. And, uh, you know, so that was basically how I did it. So what were some of the steps you took? Like you said, okay, I've got to de-stress my life. Mm -hmm. You had the aha moment. What were some of the things that worked for you? Well, one that I realized was gratitude. And I actually took a reframe with that and I thought, okay, instead of taking the victim mode where, oh, this happened to me, I'm in the hospital and stuff, you know, this is terrible. I realized, no, I should be thankful for this because I can still make a difference turning this around. So I was very grateful for that. And now gratitude is a daily exercise I do. I don't just leave it for when I need it. I do it in the evening, a bare minimum, uh, an activity in the evening where, you know, I ask my wife, what are you grateful for? And she asks me, what am I grateful for? And we recap whatever the great things that were during the day. And I, when I mean great, I'm not saying something that was just wow, so big, like, ooh, I won the lottery or something like that. No, it's like, okay, I had a conversation. Like, I'll tell you, today having the conversation with you, that'll be one of my gratitude exercises tonight. You know, I ran a laughter yoga class this morning and it's always fun. That's going to be a gratitude exercise for me. So it's just simple things that, you know, that I'm grateful for. That makes a huge difference. Another one is simple visualization. So what I find is that if I'm much better now at gauging when the stress, you know, cause we all get stressed. And when I start feeling the stress starting to rise, I take a deep breath and I basically close my eyes and I go to my happy place. And I think about, you know, all of my senses along with that. So, you know, if you go like, let's say a lot of people their happy places is the beach. And so what I do is I visualize being at the beach and what do I you know, feel? Do I feel the sun on my face? Maybe the sand under my feet? You know, what do I smell? The fresh air, maybe some sea air. 
what do I hear? Maybe it could be the wind blowing through the trees or maybe it's the water splashing on shore. And what do I see? I see, you know, the blue sky or maybe the yellow of the sand or something like that. And so by doing, integrating your senses into it, it becomes real. And then I take mm. another deep breath and I open my eyes. And it, what it does is it gives me this one minute refresh grounding exercise that allows me to now think, okay, so what do I need to do about this? Because too often when we try and make decisions, when we are overly stressed, we make rash decisions that we may totally. <laughs> regret later. So visualization has been good. I mean, there's in the book, I list over 120 of them and probably of the 120, I would say 80 of them helped. 40 of them didn't, but you know, what I found was that, you know, something that might work for me may not work for you and vice versa. Like I know that you're a huge right. uh, meditator and meditation is a fantastic thing. I got trained in dental meditation and you know, cause that focus is primarily on not worrying about your mind getting distracted. Well, you know, that's good, but I, I wouldn't say it's my go-to thing because my mind continues to wander and it's like, okay, come on back, come on back. So, you know, some other people, they love it. And so the way I think about it is figure out what works for you. Try different things. You don't have to spend a ton of time on it, you know, but once you find one or two things that work, run with it, use it on a daily basis. Yeah. Choose your own adventure. There's only, there's That's all kinds exactly. of ways to do it. And you what works for you and you stick with that. Yeah. Just, and, and the thing was that if you do it on a daily basis, the compound benefits over time will be enormous, but you got to do it. That's yep. the thing. You got to start yep. doing it because it's not going to happen if you say, oh yeah, I'll get to it next week, next month, <laughs> you know, because you'll never get to it. <laughs> right. So I'm, there's a tension in this though, okay? Because you're talking about, I'm going to add you know, one minute breathing exercise and I'm going to mm -hmm. add, you know, a gratitude exercise and I'm going to add this other thing, but you're already doing so much and you're adding new stuff to do. So did you also go through and cut and slash, I don't need to do this anymore. And how did that work? And then how did like the people around you, your coworkers and peers take it? Well, so what I did and I am, and it goes back to my sales days early in my career, my calendar is my kind of Bible, I would say. And so if it's in my calendar, that's an important thing. And so what I did was my stress relief activities ended up being a daily calendar event. And so it would ping me and say, okay, you got to do this. So like, let's say I'm busy working on something, I'm behind on something and all of a sudden it pops up. And it says, do this, go for a walk. It might be the visualization, something like that. And I had to put the mindset that it's that important. It's not going to get bumped because it's so important to my health. And one of the things that I did as well as part of this renaissance that I did was I did my personal values again. And I elicited mm. all of those and health became and remains the number one priority for me. Because in my opinion, yep. 
without your health, nothing else matters. And so, um, yeah, so that made putting it in the calendar and bumping or just eliminating things that did not rank up there with my either my health or my other top four of five personal values. Because that's another thing that is really, really important is if you're clear about what your personal values are as it relates to your career, for example, the great thing about that is when you have an important decision that needs to be made, you can run it by your you know, top five values. And if it's not in alignment with one or more of those and you still make that decision, I guarantee you're just adding unnecessary stress to yourself because you're not being true to yourself. You're just not. And so it's just, you're just asking for it. So, you know, that is how I started managing this whole thing. And that when people saw that, wait a minute, this is not the same person that I remember getting all frustrated and stressed out and, you know, constantly responding to emails and texts at all hours of the night and day. It's like, okay, I want to get an idea of how you were able to manage that. And, and, you know, and that's what I did. I just, and, you know, am I perfect? No, I don't, you know, but also as a perfectionist that came from being that in a dysfunctional family where you, you know, you can take different avenues. And I thought, okay, I got to be perfect to try and get out of here. As a perfectionist, one of the learnings that you have is that you don't have to be perfect and don't worry about it just to do the best you right. can and, 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 you know, just let, you know, focus on what's important and what's not important. The nits, you know, get to them when you can, or just let them go. Let them go. So there's a ton of like pretty staggering statistics around stress and the effect of stress on the body. Did you do a bunch of research for this? Or yeah. Is this yeah. mainly just, you did. I did. Can you just kind of walk through some of the research? happens if you get stressed. Yes. So what happens? So we talked about the cellular inflammation that happens and that, you know, if you think about our bodies, so our bodies are the same bodies that were back in the stone age. (laughs) So, you know, and stress back then, I mean, I wasn't there, but you know, let's assume that stress back there was short term. So we were stressed and we needed that fight or flight scenario to outrun a T-Rex, a saber-toothed tiger, something like that. Nowadays, what happens is we're all mostly mentally stressed. And every time we get stressed up here, we dump that cortisol into our bodies. And as we continue to do that over and over again, it creates that cellular inflammation. Now, here's the thing that's interesting in terms of a couple different studies. And one of them is more recent than I did. But one thing that stood out to me when I started doing my research was that the World Health Organization called stress the number one health epidemic of the 21st century. And back when we were dealing with the early stages and you know, first year of COVID, everybody would have said, well, no, 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 COVID is the number one health ep- you know, epidemic. Well, the WHO said, yeah, okay, so when you're dealing with COVID and all the things that are out of your control with COVID, what does that cause you? Stress. For sure. And it doesn't include all the other areas of stress. So number one health epidemic of the 21st century remains as is. 
And the other thing, I have a, a statistic that I was just, I read about that was nuts. Let me just pull it up here. That was just something, I couldn't believe it. So the American Psychological Association, it found that 20, so this is a current study, I mean, this is within the last couple of months. They found that 27% of Americans are so stressed they cannot function. 83% are stressed about inflation and 75% are stressed about violence and crime. I mean, it's just, that's nuts. That's absolutely nuts. It, it just shows that we got to do a better job of dealing with our stress. And one yeah. of the things that is a really interesting one that I found as part of my work recovering myself as well as helping others you know, we talked about just a moment ago about COVID and all the things that were out of our control. You know, back remember when, oh my gosh, I don't want to be around somebody who might be contagious or, you know, oh, that person may not yep. be wearing a mask whatever, or that person is wearing a mask, you know, however, you know, you, that you took the whole mask mandates. The reality is when we have to deal with a very serious, stressful event, what we as humans do, we tend to stress about all aspects of that stressful yeah. event. And if we can mentally do this, imagine whatever that is. So let's take that COVID back then and say, okay, what is it about COVID that I can control? And what is it about COVID that I can't control? So you have two lists and you write those two lists down and then you do as much as you can to focus all of your attention on what you can control, what happens is if you have, it can do that. Instead of 50% being spent on what I can't control, 50% on what I can control, if I can do closer to 100% on what I can't control, naturally, our stress goes down because when we feel like we have more control, it ends up helping us to get things done and we feel like, okay, now I feel less stressed. And that's, it's just a mindset thing of being able to say, you know what, what is it I can't control and be okay not worrying about it. So in the book you talk about, you have the book structured around different areas of stress. Mm -hmm. Is there an area that stands out to you as like the one that most people experience that, that most research is about or one that really stands out that you, you run into the most? Yeah, so the LIGHTEN is actually an acronym. It's a seven letter acronym for the areas of life, your, you know, the, a person's life that causes the most stress. So L is for livelihood or career. It, I call it imagination because it's where your creativity is. It's your conscious mind where, guess what? Your inner critic is. <laughs> And uh, your inner critic is only 5% of your brain, but we all know how powerful that inner critic is. The G I call your genius, which is your unconscious mind. That's where our habits are formed, our, you know, the, our memories are stored. And it's actually where real change happens, if we can get it to change in our unconscious. And then H is for physical health. T is for time. We, you know, other than our health, time is the biggest resource. Right? I mean, we only have a limited amount of time on this earth. So that one, a stressor. E is our environment. 
So, you know, if we do not have an environment that's conducive to, you know, being productive or just having a serenity, that's going to be a problem. And then N is our network of relationships, both our personal and professional ones. And where the stress typically comes mostly from people is either in the livelihood career, the time aspect, or the relationships. Those are the three big ones. Mm. Yeah, I bet. Is all stress bad or is there good stress? No, there actually is good stress. So the good stress, which is called U-stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, that is stress like if we're working on something that we are passionate about, excited about, it's the kind of stress that helps us get things done. So you got mm, a deadline yeah. coming up. Okay, but you're working on something that you really enjoy. So let's, you know, it might be a new passion project that you're working on and you know you've got to get some deliverable. Yeah, you can be a little bit stressed about getting that done, but it's good stress because it's what you want to be doing. So that's one way where you stress is, you know, or stress itself is actually very helpful. Where I have found stress being really problematic it comes in two flavors. You know, we always like we go to the ice cream parlor, you know, we want to have a variety of flavors. So stress comes in two flavors that are most problematic. One is ruminating about the past. So, mm -hmm. and this is commonly with guilt. We're either guilty about something we did or we didn't do in the past. And we keep ruminating about that. Well, guess what? It's in the past. We cannot change it. We can learn from it, but if we continue to beat ourselves up and ruminate in the past, it just creates unnecessary stress. We're all human, we make mistakes. And the other flavor is anxiety about something in the future that may or may not happen. That's the key, may or may not happen. So how many times have I talked to people who were absolutely terrified about a conversation that they had to have with someone and thinking, oh, it's going to go terribly. It's going to be awful, blah, blah, blah. Well, when you're sending that kind of energy out to that future activity, you often manifest that negative energy yep. into something happening like that. But instead, what happens is if you can think about it and go, okay, I'd say a bad, con you know, you're thinking that it's going to be a bad conversation, whether it's with a loved one, a coworker, your boss, a, an employee you have, whatever it happens to be. Instead of thinking about it going awful, think about 30 seconds after that conversation is done and whoever that person is that you're talking to, they either give you a hug, you shake their hands, they're smiling, whatever it is, you imagine that and all of a sudden, guess what? Oh, now the stress goes down. Yeah. And you know this very well, Jonathan. I'm, you know, the energy that we project out there, it, when we're stressed and we're sending that negative energy out to the universe, we're going to attract that same polarity back. And so when we project out negative energy, we are attracting back like energy. But if we send out positive energy, guess what? We're going to attract back that positive energy. So it's a really, it's a mindset way of saying, I'm not going to worry. I know that this is important conversation, but who's to say it's going to go bad? I am going to assume it's going to go good. And you walk into that conversation in a much better mindset. So there's an enormous amount of noise out there 
like, you know, certain kind of coffees you can do that improve your ability to concentrate. There's just all kinds of stuff out there, modern garbage stuff. So I really want to help people out. One of the points of the podcast is to really help people out that are in the scenarios we're talking about. So if, if you meet someone that's just under severe stress and they I only have time to do one thing, one thing, what's one thing that they can do that will reduce their stress level? Do the values exercise. Okay. Do the value. It's a 10 minute exercise and it will have life altering effects. And what I can do is I've got a, a video that I can send you the link to that you can include with the podcast and they can just Absolutely. do that. And it is an amazing activity that once you have your identified top values, then anytime you start getting stressed about something going on, just take a quick look at your values. How is this aligned? And you can ask is it on the list. Is, is it, it on, on the list? list? Is it in alignment? And if it is, then that's okay. But if it's not, now you got to think about that and say, okay, is this the right thing for me to be doing? I'm curious if you ran into, in the research portion, you know, you, I don't know, you said 120 different things. Did you run into any that people talked about and say, oh, this is the greatest thing. You should try this. And it just, it didn't work. It didn't work for anyone you talked to. Is there anything out there that people are hearing? Hey, do this to de-stress. And it just is absolutely false. They should ignore it. Yes. So there is one. Everybody thinks that multitasking is a good thing. Yes. And multitasking can be disastrous to your stress in terms of negatively, of negatively affecting your stress. And the reason being is because when there's this research study that was fantastic about this. So it did this study where it said, okay, the average worker often has like, let's say five projects they're working on it at one time. And so let's imagine that we have, you know, our entire mindset for the workday. And what happens is that if we focus on one thing and we do that until it's finished, well, it's going to have no issues because we're focused and we get it done. But what happens is, and this is what is so often forgotten about or not even realized about with multitasking, for every additional project that we're just tapping and doing this and doing that, going back and forth, what happens is there is a ramp up and a ramp down time in between each of those projects. That's wasted time. Right. And so if you talk about five projects, basically the research showed that 80% of your mind share is wasted in between the ramp up and ramp down, which leaves 20% of your mind share time for five projects. So guess what? If you have five projects, you're only giving 4% to each project. That's nuts. And so when you think, and, and there's the chances are more likely that when you're doing that little bit of mind share towards each project, you're making more mistakes with it. And so then when you make mistakes, what happens? You got to go back and spend more time on it. So right. multitasking is horrible. And I mean, I know people who say that they think, oh, I'm great. I'm just, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm eating my lunch and I'm checking my emails and I'm responding to texts and everything like that. You're not doing any of those any good. You're just right. not. Do one have at you, a time. Have you heard the Einstein quote about multitasking? No, I haven't. He says, if Einstein says, if you can safely drive a car while you're kissing a girl, you're not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. 
Yes, that is exactly right. right. And you know, it's interesting too, on that same note, you know how we're in a, uh, especially with the, the younger generations, but everything is about our phones, right? Our, right. our smartphones. Well, how many times, you know, and I have a lot of gratitude for whenever I go out to, to a restaurant because during COVID, we couldn't go to a restaurant. So I took it for total granted up until then. But now what I do as well is if I'm in a restaurant, I will look around and just see how many people yep. are there sitting on their phones instead of having a conversation. And I think to myself, well, if they're not talking, why don't they just get takeout? Because they're not enjoying the experience of the restaurant. And so I always recommend if you're going to go out to dinner or lunch with somebody important, whether it's you know, a loved one or a friend, a coworker who you want to have a conversation with, turn the phones off. Yes. Because yeah, don't put them on the, on the table. First no, then. no. Turn them off because anytime that when, you know, if you got your phone on the table and then you pick it up because you felt a buzz from a text, what are you telling the person on the other side of the table from you? Totally. You're, You're not important. You're not as important as whatever this text is. Yep. And yep. so it just takes you away. It's so important to leave the phones off. What I like to do, I like to actually leave my phone in the glove compartment of the car before I walk into the restaurant. Yep, just, good call. Yeah. I mean, and, and if somebody says, oh, you, I, what happens if that person calls? Well, call them back after right. your dinner, That's you know? Good. Exactly. So just, I want to go back to the personal really quick. Is there anything that people don't know or maybe don't remember you've told them and they don't remember about you that's really important to you that they know? Well, you know, that there, I haven't talked a lot about it, but what I have found is that when you're able to give back, that is a wonderful stress reliever. So I always, you know, for me, one of the things that is prominent for me giving back, I got certified as a laughter yoga instructor and Laughter yoga is, no, it has no yoga mats. It's, it originated in India back in 1995 by a Dr. Kataria. And basically what it does is you just do activities via laughter and get the positive endorphins in your body. And what I really, really want people to remember, in addition to the fact of not trading your health for your career, because that's a very bad trade, is to remember how beneficial a laugh is. And the secret sauce to laughter yoga, here it is, secret sauce, is if you think about how great it feels with a hearty laugh, our bodies, as smart as they are, they don't know the difference between a real, a true laugh, and let's just say we're just going <laughs> for 10 to 15 seconds. It only huh. knows that we're laughing and the positive endorphins come out, whether it's a real laugh or it's a fake laugh. And Good so if you are feeling stressed, even if you sat there in your chair, and let's say you, you were in an office and you didn't want people to hear you, you could even do it as, <laughs> your body is gonna know it. And it's gonna huh. give you those endorphins. And laughter is an amazing, amazing therapeutic tool. So, Absolutely. and that all ages will appreciate that. So that's something I highly recommend people do as well. 
So tell us how people can connect with you in case they want to find you. Sure. So I'm active primarily on LinkedIn, Professor Pete Alexander. And uh, I'm also on Facebook and uh, Twitter and uh, not so much on Instagram because I I actually respond to them manually. I don't have a bot responding to stuff. So I try and, uh, you know, limit the number of social media channels I have, but that's the best way to, to go in. And then I also am on YouTube, which, you know, the link that I'll share with the audience, that will take you to the YouTube channel. And, you know, by all means, subscribe to that channel because then you'll get a, anytime I add a new video, I'll get a copy of that too. You heard it, everyone. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's where you get the new stuff. So Pete, thanks for coming on. I appreciate the message, sharing with us about how to de-stress. Very important. We'll make sure all that stuff's in the show notes. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciate you having me on the show, and I really appreciate your listeners' time as well. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.